Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. We often say that space is empty, but in truth it's full of things like micrometeors, cosmic rays, perpetual sunlight, lethal radiation, and tons of other things waiting impatiently to kill you. Honestly, it's really just missing air to breathe, firm ground to stand on, and any sense of which way is up or down. Nothing to stress over. Earlier this year I was attending a conference on space development and it was a fascinating talk on psychology in space and I ended up chatting a lot during the conference with its presenter, Logan Smith, and a lot of what we spoke about was on the challenges any psychologist faces just trying to work with astronauts, especially if you introduce light lag into the mix. Waiting hours or even years to get a message back from home during a crisis is not great for raising confidence that help is available. Currently we have an advantage that we can really screen folks for mental health before a space flight and that we mostly have had very few astronauts, we just don't tend to send many folks to space, so we have not had anyone flip out or break down yet, but not for lack of reasons why. I am reminded of the famous moment on Apollo 13 when their oxygen tank explodes and Jack Swigert says, Houston, we've had a problem. It's basically become the legendary statement for keeping calm under pressure in a situation where you'd expect people to be cursing, screaming, or begging for divine intercession. Those are the kind of people we currently pick for space, they've got to have the right stuff, because there's just so much that can go wrong with the situation in general. Right now, we only send the best of the best to space, and that's after years of training. And yet, as highly trained and hand-selected as they are, they can definitely still break, mentally and emotionally, and there's so many more ways to do that than just going axe crazy on your ship. Indeed, odds are many astronauts have had mental health issues from space, or have at least come very close, even if officially reported incidences are minimal. Perhaps cosmonaut Valerie Reumann said it best when he wrote in his journal on board the Salyut 6 space station, all the conditions necessary for mortal are met if you shut two men in a cabin, measuring 18 feet by 20, and leave them together for two months. It isn't hard to imagine how much worse that could get on some two-year mission to Mars, or two-decade mission to a neighboring star. I once spent 14 consecutive months living in a desert during a war alongside over 100 folks I knew well, and for several months of that we were getting hit with rocket and mortar attacks daily, in the places we would eat, sleep, and try to relax, and that was in addition to everything we encountered whilst away on missions. It frayed nerves and tempers, and degraded performance and reaction. The stress hit everyone differently, and everyone was tough but to different degrees and in different ways. No one is immune, I've even been on missions with special forces and they deserve their reputation but they still feel the stress. The life conditions themselves just slowly ate away at us, and we see something similar on the space station, as we do in submarines, shelters, or refugee camps, prisons, or isolated research or military outposts and in a lot of other different environments that just push people to each of their respective limits. 
probably the most stressful or protracted stay in my life would be my 14-month deployment to Iraq. So I'll be drawing on that for analogies a lot today, but even garrison life in the barracks, overseas in a country with a different language, or living in the dormitories away from home in college can show some strong analogies for space. Stress is stress, and its causes vary in origin and severity, but a lot are universal. And again, no one is immune. Today we'll be discussing how to deal with this in space, both what the stressors are and what the supportive measures are, and many will be familiar because a lot of stress is part of humanity and life, not necessarily Earth versus in orbit. Maybe you'll hear some stressors you know and others that you might not, and maybe you'll hear about methods and ideas for dealing with stress that could help you with your own. Everyone's got stress in life, and while this episode was not made for helping the audience with their own stress, it certainly would be a nice icing on the cake. Speaking of which, don't forget to get a drink and a snack as we'll be here for a bit, and you may as well hit those like, subscribe, and notification buttons whilst you're at it. Now we want to be a bit categorical about this, so we'll be looking at categories of spaceflight stressors, physiological and physical stressors, psychological stressors, human factor stressors, and habitability stressors. We will also be drawing from categories of supportive measures for dealing with these stressors, which can include lifestyle interventions, social interventions, psychological interventions, habitat-related interventions, and mission structural interventions. Medication is certainly an option, but it would fall inside those categories just mentioned, and is also not casually to be resorted to, particularly as in space, it can be hard to carry an entire pharmacy with you, and also to keep it safe from damage, decay, or abuse by the crew, and you also have to worry about atypical side effects and chemical interactions from many environmental factors, whilst also taking great care to be acutely aware of any new factors that may be introduced by being in space. Not an easy task by any means, when you're looking at a truly huge list of medications prescribed regularly down on Earth. They may even have to go as far as conducting the same trials and studies that are done on Earth, but in space, and for every medication they could possibly think they might need. It would be an understatement to say it's not going to be easy ferrying all those people up there for the trials. Of course it might also be the case that we have to streamline the use of many other interventions too. As a quick example, air pressure and composition have a huge effect on taste buds, but humans can handle much lower air pressure than what you normally find on the ground on Earth. The lower your air pressure, the slower you leak air if something were to happen, so airplanes and spaceships like to keep their air pressure lower than what it is at sea level, and as a result, the food often needs to be drastically altered so it doesn't taste awful at those lower pressures. So even an intervention like good food, which can make folks feel better and feel more kindly disposed to those who prepared the meal or shared it with them, can go awry if everything just tastes bad because someone overlooked that the perception of the taste might be altered at those lower pressures especially if the stress they were seeking to counter was a slow leak requiring even lower pressures than normal on the station, and thus lacking good data. A problem we also see with military food, where the need for compact and shelf-stable items makes for meals ready to eat or MREs that are often not great at providing emotional relief, even when nutritionally sound. 
MREs are one of those areas of heavy interest in NASA, and also an area where the US military has wisely invested vast resources and efforts into, and could probably use more, since at its core it's a disaster food too, for war zones and refugees, and mules aimed at relieving stress can save a lot of problems. Technology matters a lot when it comes to relieving stress, and it is important to note that our current approach to spaceflight is extremely primitive compared to where we are going as a species. We have terrible ways to get into space at an exorbitant cost, and in almost an entire lifetime of spaceflight now, we still haven't sent anywhere near a thousand people to space yet, and their combined stays only add up to a couple individual lifetimes. That is abysmal compared to where we are going as a species and where we need to get to make that journey, and a lot of these problems are going to be solved by just getting better at spaceflight in general. Cheaper acquisition of the mass already in space, or cheaper means of driving mass into space and more experience at using it, will solve so many of these problems, or should at least mitigate them. Those we'll mention in passing or as examples of easy fixes, or what we'll call low-hanging fruits, but we're all a bit more interested in the ones that will be harder to solve, and are more about space rather than simply our needs to do things on a budget, low in both mass and experience. But those will likely still be in play on things like distant new colonies or asteroid mines where budget and resources might be lean even in the future. So I quickly mentioned known spaceflight stressors and interventions as general categories and I thought we would go through these in more detail now with some examples. None of these are exhaustive either, and some will give more time to than others, but let's keep in mind, while we will mention our current methods of dealing with stressors in space, our approaches will radically change when we have millions of people living and working in space. In the next 100 years, going to space will probably be about as accessible as it currently is for most US citizens to take a trip to Europe. You might not have done it, but chances are you know somebody who has, and you probably could make it happen if you really wanted to. So, if we have many more people going into space, and the journey from Earth to space doesn't require cherry picking of select candidates who then receive years of training and preparation, then we need to be prepared for people who might find that they have a difficult time staying sane in space. First, as a quick aside, we care so much about reducing stress in space for many reasons. Besides wanting people to enjoy their time in space, increased stress leads to decreased productivity, increased interpersonal conflict, and drastically increased risk of developing a serious psychological problem which can obviously lead to all sorts of mission catastrophes. When you're far from home and the environment wants to kill you, we do not want people developing psychological problems, so let's prevent that wherever we can. Let's begin with physiological and physical stressors. We've got radiation, altered sense of time, altered circadian rhythms, decreased sunlight exposure, microgravity, environmental sensory deprivation, sleep disturbance, space adaptation syndrome or SAS, limits of performance, cognitive decrements, physical fatigue, spatial illusions, prolonged deviations from normal body posture, changing magnetic fields, pain and sickness, claustrophobia, decreased motor coordination, digestion issues and trapped gas, 
disorientation, loss of bone and muscle mass, unnatural distributions of blood in the body, gut microbiomes that didn't evolve in microgravity, strict food and water rationing, no hot showers at all, feeling like there isn't much time in the day for themselves, and even if there is, being bored with nothing to do and nowhere to go. I'm sure you can think of several examples yourself. It's a category that comes with some low-hanging fruit, for instance most of the issues with sleep deprivation, which is huge for astronauts, can probably be laid at the feet of the circadian rhythm, and would largely be down to not only inadequate sunlight, but, using the ISS example, from the astronauts experiencing daylight and nightfall multiple times over a 24-hour period. All of the space stations and shuttles have orbited Earth about once every 90 minutes, or 16 times a day, meaning even if you could put in windows everywhere for natural sunlight, they're getting that at 16 times the rate of change we see with our normal 24-hour day. Humans are very, very attuned to that 24-hour day, and sunlight appears to be the single biggest regulator of that. Windows in spaceships that are further away from Earth wouldn't have day cycle either, they would have perpetual sunlight. Indeed, even just up at geostationary altitudes, where you have a 24-hour day, there's no real night anymore. Earth is only eclipsing the sun for about 70 minutes, not half a day, and only at the equinox. Amusingly, nighttime isn't universally natural, it's unique to planets and moons, and space isn't dark, the sky just happens to be black rather than blue. But there's plenty of sunlight, there's just no air for it to scatter off of. So on a spaceship bound for Mars, or simply a spaceship that's far enough away from Earth that Earth is not casting a shadow onto it multiple times a day, we have the option of just putting windows on one side and giving the ship or station a very gentle spin on an axis perpendicular to the sunlight so it turns on once a day. Assuming you trust your structural materials to let windows be an option, but that still doesn't really give you those morning and evening light levels and compositions though. We also want to be able to rotate stations and ships to produce spin gravity, and that usually involves rotational periods on order of a minute, not a day, which would be very nauseating to wash through a window, even ignoring the sunlight changes. That window would also tend to be in your floor, not your wall or ceiling, and I don't think folks would find a giant hole in the floor where they have little choice but to absorb alternating bright sunlight and whirling trails of stars that alternates between the two each and every minute of the day to be very comforting for them. Another factor to consider would be that any glass or other transparent substances would need to be built to withstand being hit by punishing levels of radiation and not let dangerous levels through. Ultraviolet light is mostly removed from sunlight by our atmosphere before it hits the ground, but what little remains is brutal on most materials and all known life forms. So we are not super anxious to use natural sunlight. It's easy to forget that even back when the ISS was built, starting in 1998, light bulbs came almost exclusively in incandescent and fluorescent forms, and those were awful at mimicking natural daylight. Even early LED bulbs left a lot to be desired, but modern LEDs can pretty much perfectly mimic natural daylight and alter the brightness and composition inside a room over the course of a day, 
They are much more power efficient than their predecessors, and even though they still require plenty of energy, solar is hyperabundant in space. It's a little ironic perhaps to skip windows in favor of solar panels, converting light to electricity and back into light, and a great loss of efficiency and effort, and maybe some form of filtration via mirrors and windows or fiber optics will work better, but going the solar panels route does solve the problem for now, with enough electricity. So you can see how complicated this becomes. We know that 78% of space shuttle crew members have taken some form of medicine whilst in space, and the most common complaint was insomnia. When you can't rely on the sunlight to regulate your circadian rhythm, you have to use artificial lighting, but that requires power and creates heat, two of the biggest issues with any space habitat. Helping astronauts sleep better will probably get easier as future space stations and space habitats get larger and have more mass allowances, but for now the options are not great. Having more power at your disposal tends to fix problems like smell too. Space stations smell bad. Astronauts and cosmonauts have long complained about the smell of everything in their habitats. Sterilizing and filtering your air in space to get rid of smells and disease is mostly a matter of raw energy. A lot of habitability stressors come down to power and mass limitations for instance. Those are limited hygiene, chronic exposure to vibrational noise, which is ironic since noise doesn't transmit in the vacuum, limited sleep facilities, lack of privacy, lighting issues, all the unnatural dirty but antiseptic aspects of the habitat around you, its three-dimensional build and your interactions with it, lacking an actual up and down, body odors, bad ventilation, toxic agents, food restrictions and limitations, bad aesthetics and instrument displays everywhere you look, they can't be blocked off or shut down or taped over, and many more. An awful lot of that is fixable through simple resources and simple raw power. Gravity is the huge one and ironically requires no ongoing expenditure of power, you just spin the vessel and centrifugal force minus any friction outside to slow it down does the rest. Though that's oversimplifying the difficulties involved a bit, but you get spin gravity from this. Then you stop needing weird and humiliating plumbing just to use the bathroom and having to deal with or be anxious about crumbs and dead skin cells floating everywhere. A little gravity, not even Earth normal, combined with artificial lighting with a little ultraviolet would do wonders on any space station or ship to make them stink less and be less filthy. That's a huge one psychologically, and is actually what inspired the title today of Staying Sane in Space. While I was deployed to Iraq, our unit moved around a bit, and was spread around too, but our longest stay was at a barracks in Ramadi where, amusingly, a couple of my brothers had previously been stationed at earlier in the war, back when they originally seized the place from the prior regime. I remember someone hearing that and quipping about homecoming and them getting quite the dirty look, followed by the sort of language we don't use on this family-friendly show. This barracks featured a dark room without windows, to respect folks needing to sleep all hours of the day, and divided into bunk bed cells by plywood. It always smelled horrible. It was also too dark but not dark enough. It was a place of whispers but always too loud. 
and as the months ground on, hearing people swear how they were going to beat someone or other to death if they didn't take a shower or clean their area up were commonplace, and it was sincere. Half the unit, myself included, smoked like chimneys, a couple packs a day, and non-smokers often hung out by the smokers just because the smell was better. The U.S. military has always had a no-nonsense policy about the importance of hygiene of individuals and campsites that served it well down the years, and which has been a deciding factor in many wars over human history, and it's not just about plagues, which have defeated more armies than combat has. Filth and stink demoralizes people and cuts into other areas of mental well-being. Keeping yourself and your environment clean and tidy and pleasant is right up there with getting enough sleep, staying hydrated, eating right, and getting proper exercise. Do all of the above to the best you reasonably can and your overall mental and physical health will be a lot better, and it will generally reflect in your mental and physical productivity, social life, and everything else. Let one of those slip and things degrade, and it will require extra effort to compensate for it or get back in a proper habit. Addressing those problems in a team environment can often help with morale, cohesion, retention, and productivity too, and obviously all must-dos in long-range space situations, like Mars missions, outposts or base, asteroid mines, or colonies. So you've got a spaceship floating billions of miles from home, far away from anyone who can rescue you, there's no easy resupply, no 24-hour store, no Amazon delivery. Now on the one hand, it is worth noting that all that prep for stuff like that can be a very effective treatment for stress too, prepping for an unlikely zombie apocalypse or any other kind of doomsday scenario does tend to make folks gain a degree of self-sufficiency, physically and emotionally, and that really does make them better at handling other crises when it comes up. But on the other hand, over-prepping can get pathological of course, and I tend to tilt that way at times myself, but training and preparation themselves are usually good for stress management in addition to just making a stressful situation less likely to happen and easier to manage if it does. So your spaceship needs to have a huge archive of how-to videos on it, not just because light lag makes getting real-time instruction or help nigh impossible, but simply knowing it's there and having skimmed through it will help your crew a lot. You have a lot of situations you can't prepare for or simulate, but simply just having general life experience and the right resources on hand will help in all those other situations. Being well prepared and trained for most of them at least means they're not causing stress or distraction while some new and weird problem is occurring, and it rains when it pours. Morphe's Law seems about as ironclad as the laws of thermodynamics. In any field of endeavor, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Left to themselves, they will always go from bad to worse, and if multiple things can go wrong, they will most likely do so at the same time. There is some real truth to that too, because the more distracted and stressed out folks are, the more things get missed, done half right, or delayed, and the more likely you are not to catch a teammate slip up or vice versa. Automation doesn't get distracted and it's also a good reason for getting into the habit of making checklists, 
not just because people do better off a checklist than from memory, but because they don't get offended by a checklist the way we all get touchy when someone reminds us of something, often even when we did actually forget. I mentioned that I got the idea for this video after talking with a presenter at a conference about space psychology, and one of the things that Logan had been talking about in his presentation was automated counseling and therapy options for space, where a psychologist isn't likely to be on hand in real time live. And when he was discussing, I found myself thinking how hard it is to take advice or counsel from a soulless and impersonal machine. Then I found myself thinking how, often, it is easier to take advice or direction from a soulless, impersonal machine. It's not keeping a scorecard or getting smug at correcting you, and you don't think it is either. If it asks you to say yes or no to a bunch of symptoms, you are not worried about it secretly judging you or going to be mocking you or calling you a liar or gossiping about you. And you know it's just cross-referencing those symptoms and severities with tables of what it might be, and when it tells you to go to bed, or get some exercise, or drink some water, it feels different than another person saying it to you. This becomes especially helpful when you imagine an authority figure, like a captain of a ship, needing therapy. How could he tell anybody on board, or anybody back home, that he needed psychological help? That's a recipe for mutiny. But an unjudging automated assistant? That is an actual option for someone in authority. Emphasis on authority here because that's going to be very strained. A few months back we had our episode Life as a Planetary Explorer, and the captain of the Explorer spaceship, which I dubbed the Firefly for good reason, is mulling over who is currently paying him or his crew and what exactly they could spend money on or why they should be continuing their mission or following his orders. Every order you issue is going to be affecting your overall authority with the crew, and same for every order from home, but impersonal automated things don't really do that as much. We can get irritated by instruction manuals or how-to videos or maintenance checklists, but we don't really feel bossed around by them. Procedures and protocols help with that too, even when it is a live person. When you're a soldier, a lot of times you are taking an order or issuing one, it's really the protocol or tradition issuing the command, not the individual. People don't really have to make as many decisions about what to order people to do, or whether or not to obey that person, as one might think. Protocols and checklists also minimize decision making, and that's a huge one for stress. Every decision you make burns out your willpower for the day, and that isn't automatically refreshed by some sleep, let alone bad sleep, you're aiming for everyone to have just enough decisions on day-to-day life not to feel shoved around while also not having to stress out deciding minor stuff, and having personal routines are handy for that, though they have their downsides too of course. We have barely scratched the surface of those stressors associated with spaceflight, and why staying sane in space is so hard, and we are already nearing the end of the episode. Let's try to summarize a few more stressors just to give you a better idea of what mission planners have to deal with now, and will have to deal with later as we prepare to go into deep space. The psychological stressors of spaceflight are incredibly relevant here, things like isolation, confinement, and loneliness will be a chief concern, but those are easy to think of. Less apparent psychological stressors are things like mission complexity, mental fatigue, 
information overload, changing career motivations, and a sense of a loss of control. We also can't forget about boredom. Being in space for months or years on end will tend to get monotonous and boring. Staying busy will be crucial here, but you also do not want to give an astronaut so much work to do that they feel micromanaged or as if they don't have any freedom or free time. Another psychological stressor that can't be overlooked are transcendental experiences. Astronauts and high-altitude pilots have long spoken of the overview effect, where being high above the ground can give you a new perspective on life on Earth, spirituality, and what it means to be human. Folks can feel this way just reaching a mountain peak and overseeing the vast landscape below. In fact, most astronauts who return to Earth report some degree of spiritual changes in their world view, but aside from these positive transcendental experiences, there is also the very real risk of an astronaut becoming so overcome with euphoria that they threaten the safety of themselves or their crew. In fact, there was once a Russian Salyut mission where a cosmonaut became so mesmerized with the beauty of the Earth that they attempted an unscheduled spacewalk without being tethered to the spacecraft. He was only saved from disaster when another cosmonaut realized what was happening and grabbed his foot at the last second. As you can see, even the good psychological effects of space can be a stressor and a real hazard. Psychosocial stressors are also worth mentioning. Things like disruptions in family life, leadership challenges, personality differences, multicultural differences, and differences between careers or specialties can all fracture group cohesiveness. We also have no idea what will happen when crew members engage in sexual behavior in space. There is no data on this, NASA has forbidden any research of this, but it seems inevitable. Can it even happen? Is it medically dangerous? Will it harm group cohesion? We can only guess. Okay, so we covered the fact that space is stressful, and we touched on the idea that there are a lot of different categories of stressors. We also know there are different categories for supportive measures to reduce that stress, and oftentimes one supportive measure can reduce multiple different stressors. For example, providing virtual reality environments to see Earth and have virtual visits with family or friends can reduce loneliness, reduce isolation, improve general happiness levels, and reduce general stress levels. This makes everything better. For another example, providing better nutrition in space can not only boost an astronaut's mood directly, but can also improve their mental health indirectly by easing aches and pains, improving energy levels, improving their sleep quality, and helping them have more mental clarity. You fix one thing, you fix many others. However, the opposite is also true, when you break one thing, you break many others. As we say, when it rains, it pours. While we have no known instances of actual mental health disorders in space, we have come awfully close. For example, the crew of the American Skylab mission once ceased all work for a day and cut off communications with mission control after stress boiled too high. Similarly, a Soyuz mission once had to end 60% earlier than planned due to behavioral issues with the crew. These are examples of mental health problems due to stress while near Earth, so what happens when a crew is in deep space? Needless to say, it might be very costly to find out. 
Another question often asked is, what happens if someone finally does snap and tries to kill other crew members or themselves? There are countless examples from science fiction of this, and it's something that space agencies have thought of. Currently, the International Space Station has powerful psychotropic medicines to sedate someone along with restraints, and the standard procedure is for there to be an emergency return to Earth as soon as possible. But what if Earth is far away? Medications and restraints are one option, but returning that person back to mental stability would be much more preferable than simply throwing them in the brig or shoving them out the airlock. Not only does that lose you a crew member, but it would be brutal on the morale of the other crew. That's why reducing stress is so important. Feelings of anxiousness left unaddressed could become an anxiety or panic disorder, feelings of depression could become a depressive disorder, or worse, we haven't experienced a psychotic break in space yet or a suicide attempt, but it could very well happen. Space is stressful and people's mental health can deteriorate when they are under too much stress for too long of a time. And that's not even getting into the complete unknowns about deep space, how will the human psyche handle not being able to see Earth at all? Or seeing an alien planet or alien life? Or if they do see Earth, realizing it's just a pale blue dot? What will happen when it starts to dawn on you that you will not see Earth for three years, eight years, or ever again? We just have no way of knowing. That's why it's so important that we pay attention to space psychology now, work out the kinks, and find ways to reduce stress and improve mental health at all stages of spaceflight. Finding the answers now will help humanity venture into the stars faster and with fewer tragedies and greater success, and maybe help us back here at home too, as other space-based technologies and techniques have done. I mentioned Apollo 13 earlier and how it's become a legendary example of grace under pressure as well as ingenuity and determination, and if you're curious to learn more about one of the most catastrophic and inspirational moments in the history of spaceflight, you will love Crisis on Apollo 13 over on Curiosity Stream that chronicles the event 50 years later. Also, one thing that came to mind while prepping this episode was if Sandy in space might be a Fermi Paradox filter, so we are going to have an extended edition of today's episode over on Nebula to take some time to examine the notion of alien psychology as a Fermi Paradox filter for spaceflight, what traits are needed or beneficial to reach the stars. I often write our episodes a few months before they air, then make the video a couple weeks before they come out, and we often do extended editions of our episodes over on Nebula, our streaming service, when I'm doing one of those videos and have some extra thoughts on the topic. And thank you to CuriosityStream for sponsoring so many of those, as they have given me a chance to expand on topics and sometimes they even turn into full episodes here. Nebula, which is now the largest creator-owned streaming service, was started by a handful of us a way to give creators more options for their work and a platform designed for creators and their audiences, not ads, and every new episode of SFIA comes out there a few days earlier and without ads or sponsor reads. We also have an audio-only version of our show available there too, early and ad-free, as a podcast, as well as all of our extended editions and some Nebula exclusives like Planets vs. Megastructures and the Coexistence with Aliens series. Nebula is a great way to help support some of your favorite channels while getting ad-free content and bonus material. 
Now, you can subscribe to Nebula all by itself, but we've also partnered up with CuriosityStream, the home of thousands of great educational videos like Crisis on Apollo 13. That lets us offer Nebula for free as a bonus if you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in our episode description. Again, you can get CuriosityStream and Nebula for less than $15 a year, just use the link in the episode's description. I want to thank Logan Smith again for his help on this episode and for his work on the topic in general. With all the focus on building a better rocket or better spaceship shielding from radiation, we often forget to examine the mental component, and yet it's such a critical part of any mission, here or in space, and to get into space we have to be mindful of our minds. Speaking of getting into space, next week we will be exploring a new space launch system, the Tethered Ring, which offers a potentially cheap and practical way to get lots of people and cargo into space and around the planet, on Thursday, September 8th. After that we will have our Sci-Fi Sunday episode on September 11th, Alien Impostors and Doppelgangers. And after that we will be celebrating the 8th anniversary of our original episode, Megastructures in Space, by examining the barriers to becoming a Kardashev civilization. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, don't forget to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help support future episodes, Please visit our website, IsaacArthur.net, for ways to donate, or become a show patron over at Patreon. Those and other options, like our awesome social media forums for discussing futuristic concepts, can be found in the links in the description. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week!